exploring the intersections of spirituality and fandom. Welcome to Hey Magical Girl. Episode 1. This is the magic. An intro to magical theory through the secret garden. Do you remember when you were a child and believed that you could do or become anything that you wanted? It didn't matter if this was a realistic goal or not. What matters for this question's purposes is if we remember those moments at all. And if you remember how earnestly you trusted in your own power to make those dreams come true. Simply because you wished it. I am going to hypothesize that that meant that you were your own personal source of divinity. This is the magic. And do you remember when you were a child what you wanted to be when you grew up? Now, you might have wanted to be a lawyer, or a doctor, or an astronaut, or maybe you were like me and you dreamt of being a famous artist, or maybe your dreams were something kind of improbable, like a vampire bat or a tuba. Do you remember going up to your parents, your guardians, teachers, or a trusted older authority figure, and you said out loud that you wanted to be a lawyer, a doctor, an astronaut, famous artist, vampire bat, tuba. And if you had any of these authority figures who were worth their salt, they probably responded with a smile and some words of encouragement or affirmation. Oh, of course, you could be anything you put your mind to. And then you smiled and you went back to your adventures and you felt that much more powerful, that much more like a god capable of creating or bending the universe to your will. This is the magic. Now, do you remember when you were a child no longer? When suddenly, or maybe not that suddenly, you were thrust into the world of adults. The adult world that no longer has a space to dream big dreams or burdens you with duties and responsibilities that must make allowances for mislaid plans or broken promises. This world that has to look at childhood aspirations and decide which of them actually line up with the more pressing need to survive to the next day. That same world that, through the actions of the trusted authority figures in your own life, eventually caught wind of your magical goals for yourself and gently snuffed that stroke of innocent divinity out of you. Now, if you're lucky, this sudden change of heart and lack of support from the adult figures in your life wasn't done out of malice or ill intent. No, I'm sure that what they wanted was best for you. They wanted to protect you from the cruelty of the world that you were due to inherit. They wanted you to be prepared. For what was inevitably going to come. And, of course, there are those out there who did wield their power over you with malice and ill intent, 
And if this was the case, I want to make the following emphatically clear. They did it out of fear of losing control over you. For fear of seeing you outstrip their placement in life and pointing out their own shortcomings by virtue of your personal successes. Their selfishness in their self-preservation should have had nothing to do with you and your own blossoming life. And my heart breaks for you if you were subject to that kind of cruelty. And sometimes, it was more than the targeted intentions of a few that snuffed your divinity. No, sometimes calamity befell our divinity due to things completely outside of our control, often manifesting in the socioeconomic environment that we found ourselves. Being born at the right place, but the wrong time of a societal upheaval or outright collapse, or belonging to a race, a gender, or belief system that ends up being disenfranchised and made powerless by those who are in a position of privilege. Now, the worst outcome of this tale is that we become the same voices that quelled our divinity to the generation that follows us. We end up becoming complicit in the suppression and eradication of magic. Or we can choose to create a brighter narrative, one that takes shape when we actively choose to reclaim our divine birthright instead, instead of, you know, stuffing it in a mental box to neglect This unifying attribute, I believe, links us to the core concept of godhood. The thing that reminds us that so long as we have the ability to create, our possibilities in turn become infinite in scope. That we have the power to declare our world, our realities, and our truths for ourselves. And that there is a terrifying, awesome power that animates from actions so bold. So bold, in fact that they can only occur in a state of pure fearlessness. Like when we were young, and had nothing to fear but the limits of our own imagination. This is the magic. So, if you're not familiar with the classic piece of literature, The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgkin Burnett, You probably have not really caught on to the phrase I've been repeating so far. This is the magic. Now, at first brush, this doesn't sound like a source of witchy inspiration and therefore wouldn't be much of a fit for Hey Magical Girl's debut episode, but I must implore with you, stay with me here. I wouldn't be dredging up my memories of 8th grade English lit for no reason. Also, uh, spoilers for a decades-old book, I guess. The Secret Garden revolves mostly around cousins Mary Lennox and Colin Craven, two children who initially, thanks to the machinations of the world around them and the attitudes of the adults charged with raising them, start out in the novel with incredibly poor outlooks on life, and absolutely no spark of that innate willfulness or confident divine birthright that I mentioned earlier. Mary is the daughter of wealthy British occupants in colonial-era India. She's had a lifetime of parental neglect and servant indulgence, and has turned her into a sickly, ill-tempered, and selfish child. 
and Colin is the son of the mesentropic widower Archibald Craven of Misselthwaite Manor. And after his mother's tragic death, and his a unique combination of parental neglect, servant indulgent, and the added bonus of his doctor's false diagnosis of a crippling hunchback, it's turned him into, well, you can figure it out by this point, a sickly, ill-tempered, and selfish child. So early on in life, these two characters have been thrust into the world of the adults around them. The natural childhood divinity killed off by extreme neglect. And it's been replaced instead with this false sense of maturity and self-importance that their little shoulders weren't really ever meant to bear. You have Mary thinking that she's royalty and she should be pampered and coddled to the point that the thought of dressing herself is completely ludicrous to her. And then you have Colin who is filled with extreme melancholy after being repeatedly told at so young an age that he was doomed to be a crippled hunchback if he didn't die young first. Now, Mary's world in the beginning of the novel is disrupted by the cholera epidemic that swept through India, and it ended up killing her entire household, family and servant alike, with those who got away not even bothering to check in on her well-being or safety. She soon found and transported to Misselthwaite Manor to stay in her Uncle Craven's household. And even though she's about as sweet as a crab apple, the change of scenery seems to do wonders for her health and her attitude. And she ends up reawakening her fascination with gardening. She eventually learns from the gardener, Ben Weatherstaff, about the titular garden. This garden was the once beloved spot of the lady of the manor, Lilas Craven and the scene of the tragic accident that led to her death. Later on in the book, she ends up finding the garden herself, and she decides to set about bringing it to life again, but she wants to do so in secret, for fear that the garden will be taken from her by Mr. Craven. For the first time in her life, Mary has reason to fear that authority will take away something that she loves. This is a pretty impactful moment to come to grips with for any person, much less a child. And when you think about the act of gardening itself, this meditative practice of purposefully sowing life into the soil and nurturing its growth, to me, it's much more than the usual literary analysis that compares it to Mary's simultaneous rebirth and growth as a person. It's actual magic happening here. Mary's decided to harness this power for herself and daring to be the facilitator and steward of the act of creation. Now, she doesn't know that this is the magic, not yet anyway. All she knows is that this is an important endeavor and that she must protect it completely. And she can only trust a select few. How lucky then that the first person she trusts to assist her is this lovely boy from the Moors who's so refreshingly and fully in touch with his personal divinity. But we're not here to talk about Dickon just yet. Now, eventually in the novel, after strange nightly moans pique her curiosity, Mary explores the manor and discovers, in a hidden hallway, her cousin Colin. He's wailing in agony over the pain of his back and the constant reminder of death. Now, despite a very heated first encounter, Mary isn't scared off by what she sees as an arrogant and spoiled child. 
talk about the kettle calling the pot black. And she resolves to continue visiting him nightly. Soon the two become friends of a sort, and she ends up confiding in Colin about all of her adventures since living in India, since moving to the manor, discovering the garden, and her friendship with Dickon. Even her plans to revitalize the grounds. Colin is immediately transfixed by all of this, but is especially caught by the thought of the garden. He decides that he will go outside, first in many years for him, because he wants to see the garden for himself. Naturally, they do. Colin's first time in the secret garden is so momentous for many reasons. He's the first to enter the garden to see the handiwork of Mary and Dickens' joint efforts as the garden creeps back to life. It was the loud, joyous exhale of a secret made manifest, and the louder, more joyous exultation of Colin. Pink in the face, warmed by the sun and light of breath, as he declared in a way that really only a child harnessing their divinity can really manage. I shall get well, and I shall live forever and ever and ever. <laughs> what a spell to cast. An intention, said plainly, and with the right amount of assuredness and determination to make it true and realized. You know, Colin's a pretty masterful magician for someone so certain he was doomed to die about a week prior. Magic is explicitly named by the children, and even on an occasion the adults in the Secret Garden, as this force that propels our characters to achieve the seemingly impossible, or to quantify that which lacks an easy explanation. Which, honestly, is pretty much what magic is anyway. When Dickon is introduced as basically this novel's very own Disney princess with animal friends that come to him for food and shelter and companionship, Mary wonders if it is by magic. Even Colin picks up on this, saying that Dickon may not even recognize his magic for what it is. When Mary whispers under her breath as Colin dares to stand for the first time, she sees it as herself casting a magic spell. Colin thinks that his success in standing up, walking, and digging was due to Dickon casting a spell on him while holding his arm for support. But Dickon warmly counters that this was a magic of Colin's own making. The gardener, Ben Weatherstaff, has long since bought into the rumors that the young Colin was a cripple with crooked knees. And he certainly thought that Colin's sudden act of standing up to challenge him was nothing short of magic. There are so many lovely moments like this in the book. Colin discovering his newfound vitality in his limbs, or the way a patch of moonlight inspires Colin to lift the curtain and smile along with a no longer hidden portrait of his loving deceased mother, Lilas. The transfiguration of Ben Weatherstaff's connection to the Christian doxology after hearing Deacon sing it. Or even Lilas Craven visiting her beloved through the veil of dreams, imploring him to come back to the garden he's long neglected for his own magical epiphany. 
My absolute favorite thing about the way that magic is viewed in this story tends to reflect a fundamental truth about how I personally feel that magic operates. It's as much a marriage of consistent belief and dedicated effort as it is a simple, thankful acknowledgement of the nature of life's happenings. Colin doesn't regain strength in his body just because he said a chant. He encouraged himself to practice at it whenever possible, and where prying eyes wouldn't disrupt his magic at work. It also included eating simpler, fresher food from the countryside, and stretching his body with exercises that Dickens showed him. Active magic to reinforce the nature and perseverance of the mental, more passive assertion of magic. Magic also goes by many different names, too. When Susan Sowerby, Dickens' mother, is invited to the garden to share in the secret, she remarks that she's never called it magic, as she uses the term, the good thing. In fact, she reasons, it's probably been called a different thing in every corner of the world. So what's magic to me might be faith to another, or science, or truth, or some form-shifting miasma of belief all at once, all of these things, none of them, and the in-between simultaneously. But most importantly, that magic, that inherent divinity that I mentioned earlier, it's shown to never be lost forever. Sure, it might be buried and supplanted by crueler worldviews, losses, and grief, or stamped out by life's necessities, perhaps, but never killed off for good, despite what others may say. It's always there as a seed, laying dormant in the earth, waiting for the time when spring returns and the grounds are thawed, waiting to germinate or sprout, poke its head bravely through the doom and gloom of the world around it, to be found, to be tended to, and nurtured, to eventually grow and flourish, to lay its claim to the world, to command it to its bidding, to make the impossible possible. This is the magic. Dickon has his divinity, and he never loses it throughout the course of the novel and it's clear that this is a trait that's been nurtured by his mother, Susan. Mary and Colin have had theirs trampled on early on in their lives, but they rediscover it throughout their time together. And, oh man, I could write another episode on Colin's scientific experiments and declarations on magic alone. Even Ben Weatherstaff and Archibald Craven are two crotchety old men who are set in their distinct ways and attitudes, they seem to regain the spark of that innate divinity near the end of the novel. Where Ben reaches a state of contentment that can only come when you've been made privy to a great secret and knowledge, Mr. Craven experiences a rebirth of his own, unknowingly, in tandem with his son's own awakening. Speaking personally, I think I regained the knowledge of my own innate divinity several years ago when I decided to trust that I was just as capable of making my dreams come true as I was when three-year-old me said that I was going to be an artist when I grew up. And maybe, dear magical being, you have this innate divinity as well.
Or maybe you're like Dickon and you've always known that you've had it. Or maybe you're like Colin and you need to have it awoken in you by a Mary Lennox in your own life. Or maybe you still remain doubtful in the absence of proof, like Archibald Craven or Ben Weatherstaff. But I think I'm confident enough that I can make another bold hypothesis to close this all out. My hypothesis is this. That magic is real. Your innate divinity is just as real. And no matter how long it's been, or how long you've been disconnected from this notion of magic and power and divinity, it's actually quite easy to call upon it again. To have it enter your life and help you do amazing things. And to prove this hypothesis, I need to only turn to our wise magician, Colin, with this lovely little quote. Magic is always pushing and drawing and making things out of nothing. If you keep calling it to come to you and help you, it will get to be a part of you and it will stay and do things. Thank you for listening to Hey Magical Girl. Intro and outro music is Work by Kevin McLeod, which can be found on incompetech.filmmusic.io. Hey Magical Girl is a one-woman project and a labor of love. If you like what you hear and you want more behind-the-scenes stuff and exclusive access to everything that I create before anybody else, please consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com slash heymagicalgirl. A super huge shout out to my patrons right now who've been super patient as I try to figure out my own personal health issues and, you know, this whole podcasting thing for the first time. But yes, super shout outs to Amanda, Finn Lily, and Sachi. You guys are the best, and this first episode goes out to you especially.